to the weekly podcast of Science and the City, the public gateway to the New York Academy of Sciences, online at scienceandthecity.org. I'm Alana Rangi. monarchy in the United States, but did you know that we have a queen of the forest canopy? We do, and her name is Nalini Nadkarni. Nalini is a biologist and forest ecologist who spent 30 years exploring the natural world and the intimate connection between humans and trees. She's climbed gigantic trees on four continents using mountain climbing techniques, construction cranes, walkways, and hot air balloons to explore the world of animals and plants that live in treetops. She spoke about her experiences and research earlier this year as part of Science in the City's Girls' Night Out series. Today, we're playing her lecture in full. Well, far from the rainforests of Costa Rica and Washington State, it's a delight to be here to enjoy the canopy of, uh, here on the 40th floor, the canopy of New York City. And um, although Adrian gave you a lot of background, background on, on, my, on some of the professional things I've done, I think I have to show you this image. Uh, in, way, in a way of a sort of introduction to me, because these are my parents. Uh, my mother, in the Sari, actually, is Goldie Pechenuk. Uh, she was born in Brooklyn, New York, of Russian heritage, uh, Orthodox Jew, and she studied Romance languages in Brooklyn College. My dad, Mureshwar Nadkarni, is from Bombay, India, uh, raised as a Hindu, and uh, was a pharmacologist with the National Institutes of Health. So I say that by way of introduction and a connection to Brooklyn here in New York City, most importantly, but also so that you will come to understand right away that part of what I do is not only study trees, but also to try to bring together different worlds. And I attribute that to my parents in large part. In pulling together this lecture about uh, what's going on in the forest canopy, how do we come to understand forests, completely by taking into account the forest canopy. I kind of distilled down the last 30 years of my professional life into these three roles. And I'd like to talk about each of them in turn. Myself as a scientist, myself as an educator, and myself as a collaborator. And one thing actually that Adrian didn't mention is that in high school, I was a member of the Latin Scrabble Club. And um, you know, which like shoots me up there in terms of geekhood here uh, at the New York Academy of Sciences. But it also means that when I'm interested in a word, what it means deeply, what it means, um, I like to think about its Latin roots. And so the word scientist comes is associated with the word science, of course, and it comes from the Latin word "seo," which means to know to the fullest extent possible. So what I'd like to do first is to talk to you about what I've specialized in, because of course every scientist has some kind of specialty in the world. We can't know to the fullest possible extent everything. And my choice was to look at the forest canopy. That part of the forest that's high above the forest floor, there's no definition in terms of how high it is, how many meters above the floor, but it's simply that part of the forest above the forest floor. Uh, you might ask, well, how do canopy researchers get up there? And in fact, that's really been a problem. In fact, canopy studies has really emerged as a scientific discipline only about 30 years ago, when people like myself and Don Perry, who taught me to how, um, how to climb trees, began applying mountain climbing techniques to get to the tops of tall trees, basically shooting a line over a branch, a safe branch. And this is one of the benefits of being a female canopy researcher is that you meet male canopy researchers that look like this. Um, 
But then it's a very simple way to get into the canyon. You pull, you pull your rope up, you tie that off at the base of a tree, you get into just a standard mountain climbing harness. Those yellow clamps there go up the rope but not down. So you can basically inchworm your way up the rope. It's safe, it's non-destructive, it doesn't hurt the tree, it doesn't hurt the climber. So it's a, just a terrific way to get up into the forest canopy to study it. Over the last 30 years, uh, people have, who want to study the canopy have developed other means of getting into the canopy. Um, there are now 16 canopy cranes that are scattered all over the world. We use these canopy cranes. We can get equipment into them. That little yellow cart goes back and forth on the jib, just like the, the cranes that you see out here at the World Trade Center site. You can go up and down, back and forth, and that jib goes around 360 degrees. So you virtually have access to the entire three-dimensional volume of the forest. Um, People are using canopy, uh, hot air balloons to get to the canopy. This is called the canopy raft, where a big dirigible lowers carefully down this, this raft on the tops of, of the flat canopy of lowland rainforests. Um, as you might imagine, it was a group of Frenchmen that inv invented this technique. So really, the, um, sort of the action of getting into the canopy has been largely solved. People can safely and non-destructively get into the forest canopy, and when they do, when I do, when I climb into the top of a tree in the Monteverde Cloud Forest, for example, I experience really a very different world, a very different microclimate. If you were up there with me on the branch sitting next to me, you would also see that you would feel a tremendous more amount more of, of insulation, of sunlight. You would feel much more wind than what you feel on the forest floor. There are greater extremes of relative humidity and temperature up in the forest canopy, and because of this, there's a whole range of animals and plants that have adapted, have evolved, to live all or part of their life cycle up in the forest canopy. A basic theme in terms of animal life in the forest canopy is that you need to have evolved a way to hang on. So you see this three-toed uh, three sloth that is very well adapted with its very strong claws to hang up on onto these branches for long periods of time. But even a, a, a viper like this one, the eyelash viper, uh, can curl around very small, very fine structures within the forest canopy and gain access to that without falling down to the forest floor. These animals that live in the canopy are responsible for a number of interactions. A number, they, they perform a number of ecological roles that are fundamental to the reproduction and the maintenance of this forest. So here you see a little purple-throated mountain gem hummingbird that's pollinating a bromeliad. Here you see an emerald toucanet that is doing the important work of dispersing seeds from one place to another. So these canopy plants and these canopy animals are not just isolated up there, but rather there's an interaction between the forest canopy and the rest of the forest as well. There's a tremendous diversity of insect and invertebrate life in the forest canopy, and some of these insects are just incredibly beautiful and showy and magnificent. And so you may wonder, like, why is she showing us these boring-looking little ant species. And I'll tell you that because um, I'm doing this because my husband, Jack Longineau, is an ant taxonomist, meaning he names and classifies ants. And he and I actually met in the canopy where he was searching for ants. And when he proposed marriage to me, he told me that he would name an ant after me. And he did. This is Procryptoceros nalini. It's a canopy ant, as he says, an elegant canopy ant. And we have since had two children, Gus or August and Erica. And so he named ants after them, too. And so we are perhaps the only family in the world that has each of us named, named after each of us. 
So I have a special little tenderness for ants in the canopy. But my, uh, my own allegiance, my own special interest, that is what I am wanting to know to the fullest extent possible, are the epiphytes. Epi means upon, phyte means plant. And so epiphytes are any plant that live upon other plants that get their support, but not nutrients from their host species. So there's no vascular connection of these mosses, these bromeliads, the orchids, the ferns, all of this amazing diversity. Over 28,000 species of vascular plants live in the forest canopy as epiphytes. They get their nutrients from the mist and fog and rain that are dissolved therein, and so that's how they make their living, rather than putting their roots into the trees or to the soils below. And over the last 30 years, my students and my colleagues and I have been studying three aspects of forest canopy plants. First, we've been trying to document their biodiversity. How many species are there in the forest canopy? How do they differentiate themselves between the forest canopy and the forest floor? A single tree, like this big leaf maple, in literally my own backyard in the Olympic National Park, can have 60 to 80 species of mosses on a single tree. So that's really where the diversity lies in the temperate rainforest, in the canopy, not rooted in the forest floor. There's sort of an unapparent diversity. Um, that is, there are these soils that build up underneath these live epiphytes on branches and trunks. And those soils are derived from the dead and decomposing bodies of these live plants that have intercepted these atmospheric nutrients that form this really wonderful organic matter. It's a true soil, a histosol, that, that, that resides in the canopy. And within that, you can get beetles and larvae and even earthworms. Some of the earthworms that live in canopy soil are bright blue. So there's this whole world of, of unknown, unapparent biodiversity that lives in the forest canopy. But as I said earlier, the epiphytes and the, and the animals and the soils that accompany them are also involved in the ecosystem as a whole. And a large part of my, of my research has been concerned with understanding where these canopy plants get their nutrients, how long they store these nutrients within their bodies, and perhaps most interestingly, how they move from the canopy to other parts of the ecosystem to be recycled. As I mentioned, every raindrop, every bit of mist has at its core a tiny bit of dust, a tiny bit of particulate. And those are comprised of nutrients like nitrogen, phosphorus, magnesium, calcium, all the building blocks that plants and animals require. So these epiphytes are pulling together these nutrients. They are very adept at intercepting and retaining these nutrients. In fact, from experiments that we've carried out, we know that canopy interception um, accounts for 80% of intercepted nutrients coming into the canopy being held within the canopy rather than being passed on uh, in the rainfall itself. So these epiphytes really perform them sort of, they're sort of like sponges for the atmospheric nutrients coming in. They serve as a mechanism for nutrient conservation. Well, eventually these nutrients will fall off. They actually slough off the branches due to their own weight. We call these epislides. They fall down to the forest floor where, like fallen leaves, they decompose and their nutrients then can be taken up by trees and other plants that are rooted in the soil. So that they are participants in the ecosystem nutrient cycles as well. I got very curious to know, as I was looking at these blank branches, how fast these epiphytes might grow back. Because, of course, if they're necessary for nutrient cycling, we want to know what the recovery rate is. And so I carried out some experiments, starting about 25 years ago, where I cleared patches of branches. I just chopped off these, these uh, 
pieces of epiphytes in their soils. I cleared all the branches around them, and I thought, well, they're probably going to just grow on back in another year or so because it's such a lush place. It's just everything is just covered with these mosses and, and, and epiphytes. And I also figured that they would grow in from the side. They would encroach from the side and just take over and, and cover up that, um, that blank spot. Well, I came back the next year, and I found that nothing had grown back. After two years, three years, five years, seven years, 12 years, finally at 18 years, I saw a little bit of green stuff on the bottom of the branch that began growing up and finally, 22 years later, coalescing around to the top of the branch. What I realized then was that these did not, these did not recover by encroaching from the side, and they in fact took over two decades to grow back. And this is a slide I like to show because it makes me remember that, and maybe some of you men can relate to this, that you know, when it's gone, it is gone. And if you're really lucky, you might get some growth growing from the bottom up and going around that effort, you know, having an effort to go up around that, that bald spot. But um, keep this in mind, because I'm going to be talking about recovery of mosses later on when we talk about uh, sustainability. So that was a lesson. That was something new that nobody un had understood, that these mosses in some ways, although they're very strong, very vibrant, they're also very fragile in terms of the length of time that it takes them to recover. The third area that we looked at, in addition to biodiversity and nutrient cycling, um, has to do with climate change. And it seemed to me that, because I know, I learned, I came to understand that these epiphytes are actually dependent on mist and fog and rain for their nutrients and water, that if we change that, if there's some shift in terms of atmospheric conditions, for instance, if we expand the dry season, when mist and fog is most important to these epiphytic plants, those are actually the conditions that are predicted for tropical cloud forests due to global climate change. And so I did a number of experiments where we actually transplanted mats of epiphytes down the mountain where they encountered, where they encountered drier, longer uh, dry seasons. And we found that these plants were negatively affected. They experienced higher mortality, slower growth rates, and, and, and smaller amounts of fruiting and flowering. So it appears then not unsurprisingly, that these plants are very vulnerable to the conditions of global climate change that are predicted for these ecosystems. Well, over the last 30 years, given the access that we've been able to achieve, given the kinds of um, experiments and observations we've been able to publish, the field of, of forest canopy studies has actually grown tremendously. And these little red donuts that you see on the world map are actually locations of major canopy study sites, not just myself, but my colleagues around the world. You can see that they occur both in tropical as well as temperate regions, and that there's really quite a lot of information that we know from quite a lot of sites. So I think it's a very hopeful time for especially young students who are interested in forest canopy studies to go into it. But there's a hopeless attitude or a hopeless aspect to canopy studies as well. And I know for myself, when I have actually been in the forest canopy and looked out over what used to be an unbroken, intact forest canopy of, of primary forest, what I see now are human activities that have negative effects on forest ecosystems and forest canopies in particular. Fragmentation of forests, harvesting of forests, bad use of soils. And so this is a time that I realized I need to not only do research on primary forests, but I need to do something else. I need to shift not only from my scientist role, but I need to also be an educator. The word educate, Latin word from, uh, comes from ex ducare, which means ex means out, and ducare means to lead. So anyone who does education is someone who is leading someone out of somewhere to somewhere else. 
And so what I wanted to do was to try to lead people from their unawareness of what was going on in the canopy to being more mindful and being more aware of what's going on in forest ecosystems. So I'll just tell you very briefly some of the things that I've been doing in terms of education, in addition to teaching my own students at the Evergreen State College. I worked together with a graduate student at the time in 1994 to start a group, a nonprofit group, called the International Canopy Network, or ICANN. It's very small, uh, but very fierce in terms of what it does. Um, we, our mission is to simply enhance communication amongst researchers, educators, and conservationists who are interested in forest canopies and forest ecosystems. So we have a database of canopy citations, both scientific and popular. We now have over 7,000 citations. We publish a, quarter newsletter, a quarterly newsletter called What's Up. Uh, we consult to the media. We write um, articles for adult and kids' magazines. We consult to, for instance, National Geographic Society when they made their wonderful film, Heroes of the High Frontier. So we really, I think, have done, I think, a great job in terms of promoting forest canopy studies and talking to people like you, for example, uh, who are really interested in forest ecosystems and nature. But I guess about five years into that, I realized that you know, I was really kind of preaching to the choir when I really began thinking about it. And I began thinking, well, what about a little girl who grew up, unlike me, growing up and you know, climbing trees in my parents' backyard in Bethesda, Maryland? What about a little girl who grows up in a place like this, where there aren't trees to climb, where she might not encounter a National Geographic? She might not have her dad take her out to a local park. And I began thinking about ways that I needed to go beyond um, just these sort of standard ways of transmitting information and science education um, and to think about other ways that I might work into this. And so that's where I realized I had to take on another role. That is the role of collaborator and that comes from the Latin con labore which means to work with. So I figured that I need to work with other people so that I could link the values, the ecological values that I've just told you about, biodiversity, nutrient cycling, resistance to global climate change, to get those values to people that might not normally sort of link on to them. Well, how might I do that? Seemed to me what I had to do was find collaborators that would allow me to link my ecological values to people who might have recreational values, or aesthetic values, or spiritual values, or economic values that I could link to the questions of forest canopies and forest ecosystems. And so what I'd like to do in my next little section is to tell you about some of those collaborations. Not only what I shared with them, but what they shared with me so that I gained a greater understanding, my goal of being a scientist, of knowing to the fullest extent possible. So I'd like to give you just one example for each of these little bubbles in terms of linking ecological values of trees and forest canopies to these other sets of values in order to raise mindfulness and awareness of the importance of trees. So let's start with recreational values. How about treetop barbie? This is sort of started out as a little joke in my lab about, gosh, we ought to make a treetop barbie. Let's call Mattel. Well, we did call Mattel, and they said, no, we are not interested in treetop barbie. Thank you very much. So we said, well, we'll build her anyway. And so we did. And so what we do is we go to Value Village and Goodwill, and we buy up a bunch of Barbies, and then we have volunteer seamstresses who make these little clothes. But the most important thing is that um, we made this little pamphlet. So this little pamphlet is about uh, plants and animals of the 
Pacific Northwest canopies, forest canopies, and this goes along with treetop Barbie when we send her out in her box. And so Barbie, then, is our collaborator. She is, takes this message of how important and fascinating forest canopies are um, to the little girl or little boy um, who has ordered that, uh, that treetop Barbie. Now, of course, we're working on ground support Ken, and we're hoping that will be as big a seller. Well, what about spiritual values? I'd like to talk about this. Um, I love talking about this because I think trees are just so naturally co-adapted, in a way, with spiritual thinking and religious writings. Um, Herman Hesse wrote a wonderful, wonderful uh, essay called On Trees. And he wrote, nothing is holier, nothing is more exemplary than a beautiful, strong tree. And um, so I thought, well, if I could link the values of trees to different religions and go to speak in different places of worship, then maybe I could make a link between trees and spirituality and ecology that I might not otherwise make if I just published National Geographic or uh, started a National Geographic. So my idea was basically very easy to realize. I, I started reading through the holy texts of all the world's major religions. It was very easy. I opened the Old Testament. There in the very first book, second verse, we learn about two important trees, right? The tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Well, the next step was simply to go to the web, download the entire Old Testament from the web, and do a search for the words tree and forest. Turns out there are 328 references to the words tree and forest in the Old Testament. And being a scientist, I then categorized them into different categories, symbolic and aesthetic use, analogies to life and God, practical use, location descriptions, and so forth. Um, and I was able then to say, well, in the Old Testament, at least, for those who, who read it, we know that trees are very important for all of these different uses in the daily life of the people who wrote and read the Bible. I'd spent some time looking at Native American spirituality. I started reading the books of... Um, the Jewish faith, the Talmud, uh, the Torah. I began looking at Buddha, Buddha's readings, writings of Buddha. Buddha, after all, was he gained enlightenment where? He was sitting underneath a bow tree, Ficus religiosa. And so there's a direct connection between spirituality and trees in many, many religious faiths. And it was at that time, after I had sort of bolstered myself with learning about these other religions that I was able then to invite myself over to churches and synagogues and temples and offer to give a sermon about trees and spirituality. As you might imagine, the Unitarians were the first to invite me in. Being a Hindu Jew, uh, they were open to the idea that perhaps somebody not of their faith in particular uh, would have something to tell them. But once I got invited by them and had a successful sermon, uh, and had a successful discussion, I began being passed around to Baptists and Episcopalians and Presbyterians and Catholics and, and other faiths. But I never had a problem as a scientist in a church. I never once had a problem with the idea of evolution versus creationism. That never came up. At one point, actually, someone from the Westwood Baptist Church in Olympia said, Dr. Navkarni, could I have your email address, please? And I went, oh, God, here it comes. And uh, you know, this is a sort of a fundamentalist religion. I said, you know, I'm a Hindu Jew, I really don't think I'm going to want to join your church. But and he said, no, no, this isn't about proselytizing. We're having a tree planting next Saturday because we want to protect God's creation. And we, we thought you might be interested. And I realized at that moment there was this wonderful connection between people that you might think are very separate, a Hindu Jewish conservationist forest ecologist with a Baptist. Because we were all about the same thing. We were about protecting biodiversity, whether it was created by God or created through evolution. 
we had that in common. Very wonderful moment in this, in this whole idea. So we've looked a little bit at recreational values, at spiritual values, and now I'd like to talk about the connection of ecological values about trees and forests with our aesthetics, our sense of aesthetics, and about art, and how wonderful it is when we can bring art and science together in order to better understand the world. Because really, artists and scientists, I've come to understand that we're really doing the same thing. We're trying to observe and understand the world around us. We do it through visual ideas or scientific ideas, but the, uh, the approach is really pretty much the same. And so I decided to harness what I could in terms, of, in terms of understanding what artists see and produce when they are in the forest and bring scientists and artists together uh, to figure this out. So I started a number of um, what I call canopy confluences which, in which I brought together a number of scientists, mostly forest ecologists, with a number of artists. We would spend a week out in the forest. We would rig trees. I taught everybody how to climb, to use that climbing equipment I showed you. And then we spent long periods of time in those little green, uh, little green pl platforms up in the tree. Every day we would go up there. The artists would make their art. The scientists would do their science. And sometimes the, the scientists would say, hey, I need someone to help me measure these mosses. Or an artist would say, you know, I need someone to hold the watercolors. And so there was a wonderful mixing of, um, of the science and art that went on during these confluences. We've carried these out in the Pacific Northwest and also in Costa Rica. Some of the people created art right there in the forest, but others, like Bruce Chow, who's the director, uh, or he's the chair of the Department of Sculpture at Rhode Island School of Design, took the ideas and the images that he gathered during that week-long confluence. He went back to his native Rhode Island woods, and he created this beautiful piece, this installation called Ether. And it shows this, the strength and fragility of this tree canopy structure uh, that he was very intrigued with. Um, and, and created himself when he went back home. We brought a dance group to the forest canopy, a group called Capacitor, um, a wonderful director, artistic director choreographer named Jody Lomask directs this wonderful troupe. She likes to bring scientists in with her when she starts choreographing a new dance. And she was very interested in making a dance about rainforests. So she came down to my study sites in Costa Rica uh, with her six dancers. We climbed trees. After day three, they had all taken off their clothes and were dancing nude in the forest, and it was just wonderful. But I would tell them stories about what a, a strangler fig is, what is a vine, uh, what are these, these uh, glass frogs doing in the stream, and how do they live their life cycle out. And she would interpret those in terms of this fantastic dance that she created called Biome. When we came back to the States, she and I performed together. That is, I gave a short talk about the forest biodiversity and complexity and fragility, and then she and her dancers performed this beautiful dance about rainforests. And then in the lobby, we had conservation and science education groups with tables that had opportunities that people who had just seen our performance could take advantage of. They had been made aware and educated by what I had talked about. They were inspired by her beautiful dance, and then they turned that inspiration into actual action. We brought musicians up into the canopy. We brought a um, wooden flute player, an oboist, a wooden guitar player, and a rap student, a student of mine from San Francisco there on the bottom. And um, his name is Duke Brady. And uh, he made this fantastic canopy rap song. And 
You know, he, when I, sometimes I go into schools and, you know, give talks about the forest canopy, and whenever I played Duke's Canopy Rap Song, the kids just went crazy because they were just so excited about it. And I actually would like to play a little piece for you. Are you, look up, expand your perspective, don't click that, don't be so selective. Just another minute and I would leave you alone, try walking a mile in a different biome. So, so great. But I realized here was a tool, perhaps, in which I could reach another audience, an audience that I really didn't have much luck, uh, you know, in terms of connecting, and that is urban youth. Um, you know, a middle-aged professor like myself, even though I do have brown skin, doesn't seem to really cut it in terms of, of getting kids excited about forest canopies. So I hired a real professional rap singer, a guy named Caution, and I, I also brought in two other biologists and myself, and we brought together 40 kids from Tacoma, the inner city of Tacoma, the city nearest me. And uh, we spent a week on our forest camp, on our college campus. I took them out one day, and we brought them all to the forest, and, and Caution would pick up a rock, and he would start rapping on it. And then the kids said, hmm, that's pretty cool, because Caution's doing that. And then Gerardo Chinliao, who's a marine biologist, did, biologist did the same thing on the beach. He would pick up this squishy thing and, and Caution would start rapping on it and the kids thought that was cool and so forth. And so every afternoon we would go into the sound studios at the Evergreen State College and with the help of Caution, breaking them into small groups, they began making their own rap songs about their field experience, about the forest, about the ants, about the beach. And so they left that week then hopefully thinking, and I think they did, that science could be cool, science could engage them because they had used their own words, their own music, and their own culture to understand uh, trees and the, and, and, the, and the forest itself. So the last little bubble I want to talk about is uh, relating ecological values to economic and social justice values. And of course, in terms of economic values, I could go on and on about the economic values of trees and lumber and paper and all of those things that trees provide for us uh, that, that relate to our economic values. But I'd like instead to talk to you about what we call a secondary forest product, and that is moss. Now, here in New York City, you may not be aware of the large and growing industry of the harvesting of moss. It's about $265 million a year. Basically, the floral trade uses moss that's collected from old growth forests in the Pacific Northwest and also in the Appalachian Mountains uh, to create moss hanging baskets and, and shipping bulbs and so forth. And do you guys remember how long it takes moss to grow back? Over two decades. And so this is what a, moss that, a tree that's been stripped of mosses looks like in the Pacific Northwest. It's going to take a super long time for that to grow back. You might also remember that these mosses and epiphytes have a lot of important ecological roles. And so this non-sustainable harvesting is of great concern to ecologists of me who value these mosses because of their ecological uh, positive values to the ecosystem as a whole. And it seemed to me then that, I mean, I couldn't, I can't enforce, I can't change enforcement. There's not enough national park guards to stop moss harvesting or national forest par uh, guards to stop, harvest, stop harvesting. But what I could do as a botanist and a forest ecologist is learn how to grow this moss, to farm it like we farm peas and beans so that we don't have to strip it out of the wild. And it also seemed to me that perhaps collaborations with prisoners would be the way to do this because they are extremely far away from any kind of environmental education. They have almost no access to nature. And it seemed to me they would really value being able to work and nurture and smell living things. 
And so I approached a number of prisons. The first two said, no, I don't think, who the hell are you? you know? uh, but there was one prison, um, the Cedar Creek Correction Center in uh, Rochester, New York, about a half an hour south of me, that said, well, let's give it a try. So my students and colleagues and I went out and we gathered mosses with a permit from the Olympic National Forest. We brought the mosses in. We taught the inmates how to tell the different species of mosses apart. They became very adept at this. Uh, they were wonderful partners in terms of setting up experiments, in terms of consulting on study design, in terms of watering these mosses on a regular basis. In fact, one of them, Craig Ulrich, ended up with me co-authoring a scientific paper, a peer-reviewed paper in the journal Environment Development and Sustainability. So he has that as the first author uh, with Cedar Creek Correction Center you know, as the address where, where he was. He has actually since been released, and he is now, I'm really proud, really, really proud and happy to say, he is now a graduate student at the University of Nevada in Reno in biochemistry and molecular biology and doing very well. We began working on uh, sustainable, uh, sustainable operations, so we started a garden. Uh, we began teaching them beekeeping. Uh, we began teaching them recycling and set that up at this prison. And pretty soon, a whole prison, that whole little prison, began not just being a regular gray prison where the conversations are about how many years do you have left, became green. They became more sustainable. And the conversations were about, hey, man, you got the hylocomium splendens mixed up with a Isothesium stolen Ephraim, man, and will you quit doing it? And I'm not kidding, those conversations really go on. We started bringing in other scientists, projects that were not just my own, but other scientists because the inmates were really interested in them. So they, the topics range from practical aspects of, of energy, clean energy, and so forth, to very esoteric things like antaxonomy and, and purple martin biology. And really, everything's to, everything seems to be of interest in terms of science, sustainability, and nature to these men and women who have been kept away from them. We provide materials, scientific materials, to the men when they come to our lectures so that they have something to bring back into their cells and learn about in more depth. There's really, I think, no one who can't be a collaborator in, in uh, sharing nature and, and sharing scientific ideas. And I have to say there is one exception to that. And um, maybe here in New York City, I can finally get this last little link. And that is to do with fashion and clothing. Because a lot of people really value clothing and fashion. But like, I don't have a clue how to get into that world. And so you know, in New York here, maybe there's like someone who knows or has connections in the garment district. Because here's the idea is um, people pay attention to clothes. So that means it has some value to them. So why not? put beautiful, these beautiful images of canopy plants on clothes, link a little information up with it, and then people would be interested in that. So you, know, you might say, well, we already have canopy, I mean, we already have camouflage clothing. That is our answer to nature clothing? I don't think so. I mean, it's linked with the military or it's linked with hunting. You know, not that there's anything wrong with either of those, but I, when you actually start wearing this stuff and looking at it, you realize, oh my god, there's a maple leaf and an oak branch. That's all wrong. I mean, it drives you crazy when you see this. So what I'm about is about making botanically correct clothing. And I started with this. This is my moss cape. Um, it, it did work. Uh, it actually grew during year two. I had to sort of trim it back. But it sheds pretty badly. And so you can't really wear it to an affair like this because you sort of make a mess. But what I did decide to do is I made this 
beautiful little jacket. I took a picture of Piper aretum, which is a canopy-dwelling plant in Monteverde. Gorgeous plant. It's endangered. It's, it's, uh, uh, and I, I then printed it. I went to a print shop downtown, downtown Olympia, printed on material. I then had a student of mine who's in, the, in theater, and she made that lovely little jacket. And then that little hang tag there describes the jacket, but it describes the plant as a plant that lives in Monteverde. Piper is related to Piper nigra, which is the black pepper plant, you know, what you shake on your, on your uh, scrambled eggs in the morning. And so suddenly then, our collaborator becomes the jacket. And as you walk around with that jacket, you know, if you're standing in line at Starbucks, someone says, hey, nice jacket. There's your opportunity to say, well, Piper nigra, Piper aretum here, Grows in Monteverde, it's an endangered plant, and it's related to the plant that you put on your scrambled eggs in the morning. So again, there's a collaboration that will allow us to link ecological information to everyday life and associate it with another value. So as soon as I sort of get this logistics figured out, I think that really there is no way, no, no audience that can't be linked to understanding and appreciating and becoming more mindful of trees and forests. And actually, I, I, you know, I kind of think that's amazing. And I sometimes question, and I think, like, why is it so easy? Why is there such universal acceptance um, to, you know, to, to trees and forests? In my role as a scientist, in my role as an educator, in my role as a collaborator, I've really come to see that there is, there is no boundary. And I have come to understand that I think it is because we really do hold trees in our heart. And I say this metaphorically as well as truly. This is an actual picture of the human heart. And you see that the vasculature is very tree-like in its nature. It's, it's dendritic. And, and so I think that we hold trees in our heart physically, but I also think that we hold trees in our heart kind of in a, in a metaphorical way. And I might, I've asked myself why this is. And I think, it's, I think there's several reasons, and I'll tell you three of them, three theories that I have about this. One is I think that although trees cannot speak, they have no eyes. They lack some of the structures that we do. There are certain characteristics, certain structural characteristics that we hold in common. We have trunks. Trees have trunks. We have crowns. Trees have crowns. We have limbs. Trees have limbs. So I think there's a certain kind of identification that we do when we see a tree and we liken it to ourselves. I think also, secondly, that um, trees represent kind of a dualism or a contradiction in certain ways. For example, um, and I think that, that a dualism is very compelling to human beings. When we see two things that are opposite, we pay more attention to that. So one dualism about trees has to do with their relationship to space and time. They're both static and they're dynamic. They're static in that, well, they really sort of epitomize stasis. They're rooted in one place. They can't walk away from changes of global climate change. They're stuck in adulthood to the spot, you know, where their seed was laid as a when they were just, you know, when they weren't even born yet. So I think they really um, are. They epitomize staticness to us. But they're also highly dynamic. If you look at the twigs and the branch of branches and out at the very tips, we know that they move, they grow, they produce flowers, they produce fruits. They have to grow into new space to gain access to sunlight. So in many ways, they're an extremely dynamic entity, despite the fact that they're stuck in one place. They're very dynamic in terms of what we see through the time of a single year. They tell the seasons. They bring color to us in the fall. They hold on to snow during the winter. They have these beautiful green little leaves during the spring, and they have these gorgeous green canopies during the summer. 
and they last for a very long time. Uh, this is a bristlecone pine, truly like where we all need to go for a pil pilgrimage. 4,000 years old, this tree. And Herman Hesse wrote about the age of the tree and about how it can live through time. And he wrote, when a tree is cut down and reveals its naked death wound to the sun, one can read its whole history in the luminous inscribed disk of its trunk, in the rings of its years, its scars, all the suffering, all the sickness, all the happiness and prosperity stand truly written the narrow years and the luxurious years, the attacks withstood, the storm endured. And thirdly, I think trees are compelling to us because they exhibit tremendous strength, but also frightening fragility, just like us. They're awesomely strong. A tropical tree, when I've sat on the top of a tropical tree during a huge windstorm, I can just go back and forth and back and forth, tied in with my ropes to feel the dynamics of that strong tree. Urban trees can silently withstand the indignities of an urban existence, of pollution, of soil compaction, um, of genetic isolation from their species. And yet, when you look at a tree like that, they're also extremely fragile. They can succumb to the bite of a bark beetle or a chainsaw that's one thousandth their size. A tropical a fig tree species can go extinct if we pump enough carbon dioxide into the atmosphere to raise the temperature just one degree. They are fragile. And because they are fragile, I know that they need our protection. In fact, they invoke in me the same sense of protection these days as my own children. And when I think about this, you know, when I, when I look at, at this very tiny little sapling of an apple tree, it really brings something out in me that tells me I am not just a scientist, I'm not just an educator, and I am not just a collaborator. I know that I'm a mother. Because a mother, a parent, could be a father, and a mother in the sense of we're all mothers and fathers, we are all parents of everything on this planet. Nothing pulls me more as a mother and as a parent in terms of compassion and hope than my own children, my own sweet Gus, my little boy who's now 20 years old, and my own sweet Erica, who's now 17 years old. And I want to share a poem with you, a poem that was written by a woman named Gail Mazur. She wrote a poem about an apple tree. It's called Young Apple Tree December. And it captures, I think, the quality of, of a young apple tree that is shared by a daughter, both strong and fragile. Young Apple Tree December. What you want for it, you'd want for a child, that she take hold that her roots find home in stony winter soil, that she takes seasons in stride, seasons that shape and reshape her, that change not frighten her, rather that change meet her embrace, that she find her place in an orchard, that she be her own orchard, that she outlast you, that she prepare for the hungry world, the fallen world, the loony world, something shapely, useful, delicious. I think we can all relate to this because we are all mothers and fathers and parents of all the trees in the world, not just in Central America or Central Park. We want to help the trees find their home in stony soil and thereby contribute something positive to this hungry world, this fallen world, this loony world, you can do that here. You can do this in New York City. 
There are groups right here, the Central Park Conservancy, the New York Tree Trust. You'll find them if you want to search for them. I know that the work is not easy. I know there are conflicts. I have felt frustrations of work not going fast enough. There are people who do not listen. There are dry summers. There are cold winters. But I think there is hope. And I like to take heed from one of my very favorite authors, Arundanti Roy. Another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, if you listen carefully, you can hear her breathing. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening. Science in the City is a nonprofit program at the New York Academy of Sciences. This means we need your continued support to keep bringing you this weekly podcast series, as well as the rest of the Science in the City program, like our events and our website. For more information on Academy membership and to support Science in the City today, log on to scienceandthecity.org slash donate. As always, we would love your feedback on any of the programs we run at Science in the City. Shoot us an email at scienceandthecity at nyas.org. See you next week.